The first step in the Eightfold Path of the Buddhist teachings is called Right Understanding. And it's really the foundation of the entire spiritual journey. With Right Understanding, then everything we do in our lives is well-directed. It's onward leading. With right understanding, we're in harmony with the Dharma, with the law, with the nature of things. We're in harmony with the goal of liberation. Without right understanding, without this wisdom, there is a basic misdirection in our lives. There's a kind of confusion or unease or separation or alienation because we don't really understand how things are working. One of the main parts or aspects of this first step of the Eightfold Path of Right Understanding is the underlying wisdom that wholesome and unwholesome actions bring about their respective results. It's understanding that each one of our actions, whether it's actions of our body, actions of speech, and actions of the mind, that each one of these actions has an effect. They have power. This is what is called the the understanding or the law of karma. Understanding the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, is really the foundation of the entire Dharma. And it's the source point, it's the origin, it's the beginning point of every kind of happiness for us. Because from this basic wisdom that each of our actions brings results, the understanding that each of our actions bears fruit, it's from this place of wisdom that we actually can begin to make wise choices in our lives. So tonight I'd like to talk about this law of karma. Talk about it in several ways. First, let's speak about the mechanics of it, how it actually is working in our lives, and how it's working practically. I'd like to talk about some of the misconceptions that we often have about karma. And finally, about the relationship between this understanding of cause and effect, and the development of the Brahma-viharas, of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The Buddha was very clear about this. He identified the mental factor or the mental quality of volition as being karma. It's that mental quality or mental factor of will And he said that each of our intentional 
or willed actions <coughs> are, are like seeds. Each of our intentional actions are like seeds which bear fruit. And like a seed which can bear many fruit. You know, if you plant an apple seed or a mango seed, becomes a tree with many fruits and each of the fruits has many seeds. One action, in just the same way the Buddha said, is the cause or the condition of manifold results. It's not a single result. So the Buddha said all beings have these three volitions. Volitions of body, speech and of mind. All beings have these three volitions as their true property. All beings have these karmas, actions of body, speech and mind, as the seeds of becoming. We often overlook both the mystery and the power of a seed. You know, a seed is such a small thing. And just when we look in nature, you know, a giant redwood or a giant oak tree comes out of a very small seed. It's really quite amazing, you know, that that seed has the potential for a fruit, a result of that magnitude. Now these volitions or intentions are in themselves neutral, it's a neutral factor. Intention is neither wholesome nor unwholesome. Intention is simply the willing force or the volitional force or the intending force in the mind. What determines the karmic fruit of each of these intentions is the motivation associated with it. So when there's an intention or volition to act, to speak, to move, to do something, what is the motivation associated with that intention? It's motives which are the determining factor for what kind of fruit is produced. And as has been said before, this wonderful uh, pith statement, pith teaching, everything rests on the tip of motivation. It was precisely for this reason that the Buddha gave so much importance and so much value and emphasis in explaining the wholesome and unwholesome roots or motivations in the mind. He talked about those motivations of greed, of desire, of wanting, of grasping, the motivation of hatred or anger or ill will, 
the motivation of delusion, of ignorance. But these are the unwholesome roots. They're like the seeds, when they're motivating our actions, they bear the fruit of suffering or sorrow or pain in our lives. The roots of happiness, the seeds of happiness are just the opposite. The force of non-greed, which is generosity, or non-hatred, which is love, or non-delusion, which is wisdom. These are the seeds which bear the fruit of all kinds of happiness, worldly happiness, spiritual happiness, bear the seeds of awakening. The Buddha described this law of karma as being the light of the world. Why did he call it the light of the world? Because it illuminates the journey of our lives. Without this understanding, it would be very hard to make sense of how things are unfolding, to have a real basis for making wise choices. When we have this right understanding about the law of karma, we know what it is that brings happiness. We know what it is that's the cause of suffering. It's kind of interesting to look at our present situation because it reveals a lot both about where we're coming from and about where we're going. When we look at our present situation, we can really see the nature of our past lives. Because what we are now is the fruit of our past actions. And if you're curious about where you're going, all we have to do is take a look at our present actions. Because it's our present actions which will create the karmic fruit of our future. So there's a great need, there's there's really an urgency in our lives to pay careful attention to the motivation in our hearts. Are we willing to look? Are we really willing to investigate, to see without judgment just for the sake of clear seeing, of right understanding. It requires a tremendous honesty and a tremendous courage and a very keen mindfulness, very keen awareness to actually know what our motives are. So how can we understand this law of karma very practically in our lives and experiences. You know, not simply as some theory, but how can we really feel it, taste it, experience it in our lives? There are many ways to do this. One way has to do with what is called present or coexistent karma. It's very simple and very obvious. 
What is the immediate effect of different actions? You know, when we do an act based on greed, what is it like? What does it feel like? Or based on generosity? When we act, whether with our body, whether with our speech, whether it's in our minds, when we act in any of these ways, motivated by anger or ill will, what's the immediate karmic result? What is it like? In our own experience, what's it like in terms of the result of how other people are relating to us? When we act motivated by love, it's so clear when we're paying attention the, the suffering or the happiness that these different roots bring to us. There's another meaning of present karma, and that is understanding that the state of our mind, or the quality of our mind, (coughs) affects the results of whatever actions we're performing. Suppose we have some thing that we want to accomplish. The present karma of that situation means that depending on whether there's energy, effort, wisdom, discernment, all of these qualities in the moment will have an immediate effect on the outcome. There's another way that we experience karma, (coughs) and this comes up very often in meditation practice. And that is the experience which you've all had, we've all had, of how the mind retains impressions of all our past actions. Now, and this can become a source of great joy when we remember the skillful, wholesome things we've done, and can be a source of great remorse when we start remembering the unskillful or unwholesome actions. It's often a purifying process. You know, as we sit and the mind gets quieter, precisely because the mind is more still and there's greater openness, you know, I'm sure you've noticed how we start remembering things we didn't even know, you know, we remembered. Just these past memories start coming up. And it really can be the unwinding of old karmic knots. You know, as we go through these memories or impressions, images, and perhaps feel the contraction of past unwholesome states as we remember if we can be with it without judgment, just in that place of openness, of awareness, it's as if these contractions begin to relax. We begin to unwind. But we need to bring an awareness, we need to bring a compassion to these memories. So part of the karmic unburdening is letting all these impressions come up. 
you know, impressions of memory, of feeling, of sensation. Being with them mindfully and then letting them go. On the last retreat I did, <clears throat> it was last spring, sat for a couple of months, and it was amazing how many of these memories appeared. And for some reason, at least with me, I don't know if this is in common, but most of the striking memories were all the unwholesome things. <laughs> and many of them were things I had remembered before. And as they would arise again in my mind, I would just kind of shake my head, mostly with a smile, but the most frequent note I was making in this regard was, oh, how stupid. <laughs> how could I do something so stupid? <laughs> and some of them were pretty stupid. <laughs> but as Nyanaponika, the terror, the wonderful he was a German monk who lived in Sri Lanka for a long time, died recently. He called this whole process the general house cleaning of the mind. You know, and that's really what it's like. We just kind of create the space and let all of this come. Because they are there in the mind as impressions. And to the degree that we can be allowing, seeing them, without too much judgment. You know, just letting them up and letting them go it really begins to free us from that uh, strong karmic entanglement. Sometimes we experience these impressions as very strong and very particular body sensations. Now, some of the sensations we feel, especially when they seem to just come out of the blue, it's a very intense experience often are the result of some uh, particular incident in the past. It's amazing uh, what is in some way stored in this body and mind. <coughs> the way our practice unfolds is also the result <coughs> of our past actions. Buddha spoke of four different kinds of yogis those who proceed quickly with no pain <laughs> and those who proceed slowly but without much pain and those who proceed quickly with a lot of pain and those who proceed slowly with a lot of pain <laughs> I think most of us put ourselves in this last category <laughs> slow progress and it's difficult but I like the description of this mostly because it just made it very impersonal. You know, so much of what's reported and what I've seen in my own mind uh, is this continuing assessment we make of our practice, you know, and this kind of judgment and, oh, I'm a bad yogi and this is not working and just mind getting caught in that little theme. It was really helpful for me through all the ups and downs of practice, you know, and times when it felt like not much was happening or it was really difficult. Just to see, yeah, it's just a karmic unfolding.
And it doesn't matter. Because the essence of liberation has to do with the mind of no clinging. And the mind doesn't care what it doesn't cling to. (laughs) This is very helpful to remember. Yeah, the nature of our experience is largely karmically conditioned because of innumerable actions in this life and perhaps past lives. But the mind of liberation is always accessible, regardless of what it is that's arising. We need to remember this. So another way we experience, we can really see the working of karma in our lives. First, it's the present karma of just how we feel, how we are in doing different actions. The second way is sort of reliving past experiences through impressions, memories, you know, and the joy or remorse that they bring. The third way we can understand karma is really to see the whole development of our personalities over a lifetime through the repetition of certain actions. Now, maybe we're particularly fearful or particularly loving or generous or stingy or whatever it may be, or some combination, a complex combination of patterns. It's helpful to see that every time that we act, we are strengthening a particular quality. We're strengthening a particular factor of mind. Don't underestimate the power, the conditioning power of small actions. There's a concept which was explained by uh, this biologist, Rupert Sheldrake, who's I don't know a lot about it, but from what I know, he's kind of on the leading edge of biological theory. Anyway, he he has this notion, he called it morphic resonance. And he used many examples from the natural world, which he uh, explained that any time something, that once something happens in nature for the first time, it's easier for that thing to happen again. So phenomena may never have happened before. It happens once, and then all of a sudden, it's happening all over. But the occurrence of it once makes it easier for it to arise again. And when I read that, it so resonated with my understanding of practice and understanding of the mind. The incredibly strong power of habit Every time we do an act, it's easier to do that very same action again. Because we're strengthening that particular tendency. It's this understanding of the power of habit 
that really brings to life the reflection of karma as an actual practice. This is really a vital practice because we see, yes, everything I do is conditioning and reconditioning the mind in a particular way, one way or another. So what are we practicing in our lives? Because every action we do is a practice. We're practicing something. Are we practicing delusion? Are we practicing anger? Are we practicing generosity? Are we practicing kindness? Each of these actions, each of these motivations is being strengthened. And so we want to really pay attention to that because this enables us, it gives us the interest and the strength to really look carefully and to make wise choices. Now we might ask the question before an action, do we really want to go where this action leads? Where is it leading? And do we want to go there? There's another way karma or repeated actions conditions our lives. It's not only the development of certain tendencies or you could say personality traits. Within the Buddhist cosmology, which as you know is vast, It also talks of how these karmic tendencies create all the different realms of existence. You know, the lower realms of suffering and the human realm and the higher realms, the devas, the brahmas. There's one teaching about how rebirth can happen through the power of one's aspiration. Now usually we just go along and sort of take what we get, you know, with hopes for a good one. (coughs) But there's also a way to make the process conscious and sometimes we read of great beings who actually do that. The Buddha said that there are five conditions which make rebirth by aspiration possible. So for those of you, you know, who'd like to do that, I'm just, this is just letting you know what needs to be developed. Faith and sila, the power of morality and learning or understanding, generosity and wisdom. And when these five qualities are strong, then it's possible, as it's taught, to actually make an aspiration for where you'd like rebirth. There's one story which just really appeals to me. Uh, it's from the text, and there was this one guy who you know, had led a very good life. And so on his deathbed, he's having all these kind of dying visions, as they say one does, of you know, future possibilities. Uh, and it said that because he had led such a good life, I know you might not believe this, so, so 
<laughs> I like the story. <laughs> it said that uh, he just had these visions of sort of representatives from all the different deva worlds. It's like, I don't know, there are six or seven, you know, celestial realms. You know, and sort of representatives came down and each was inviting him, you know, to come to their realm. Uh, that was a nice thought. <laughs> Hmm, I'll go to Tusita. <laughs> Another way, in addition to karma conditioning rebirth in the various realms. Another way of understanding karma, and I think this uh, is important and uh, difficult in a way to understand, Somebody came to the Buddha once, it's in one of the discourses, and they asked him, why are there so many differences in people? You know, some people are beautiful and some are not. Some are intelligent and some are stupid. Some are rich, some are poor, some are healthy, some are ill. What accounts for this wide range of differences? And in this particular sutta or discourse, the Buddha laid out the various karmic conditioning which led to various results. So just as an example, he said, those who practice gentle speech, the result is beauty. And those who practice harsh or angry speech, it's lack of beauty. Those who practice generosity, the cause of wealth. Those who don't practice generosity is the cause of lack of wealth. Non-harming beings is the cause of health. Harming beings is the cause of ill health. You know, and it goes on like that. But a great care is needed here. And care is needed in a couple of ways. One is, people hear this, and perhaps the first reaction is, well, I know a lot of people who have led really good lives and still seem to be suffering a lot of misfortune in one way or another. It's impossible to understand this working out of the law of karma within a single lifetime. And one would really need the vision of many, many lifetimes to see how you oh yeah, because of that, this is the result, and the result can come many lifetimes afterwards. And this is what's so mysterious about the working. How does that happen? It really is mysterious. Another great care that's needed here is not to misinterpret this law of karma and confuse it with the attitude of blame. <coughs> You know, either blaming oneself or blaming these sort of unfortunate tendency of blaming a victim. You know, oh, it's their fault. You know. We can understand that all situations have conditions and causes behind them. We can have this understanding that things are not happening accidentally. But there are causes, there are conditions, including one's past actions. 
and still respond to situations of present suffering with great love and great compassion. It's true that there may be, there are, conditions behind the suffering. And the conditions may have to do with an accumulation of past action, but that has no... bearing really on our responsibility to respond to suffering whatever the causes may be with as much compassion as possible as much openness as possible because blame whether we're blaming ourselves or blaming others closes the heart to love when we're filled with the blaming attitude We're not loving, we're not compassionate in that moment. Now, in this very big vision of things, of endless lifetimes, and endless motivations behind actions, we realize that we've all done everything. We've all done incredibly good things because the karma of our being here together and our circumstances, I mean, it's amazing blessing. And we've all done countless, innumerable, unskillful things where we've harmed ourselves and harmed other people. But what we begin to see is that those harmful actions whether done by ourselves or done by others, are always done out of ignorance. And that the fruit of that ignorance is the suffering in the moment. But what is the skillful response to ignorance? You know, when we see it at that depth, when we see it at that level, what is the skillful response to ignorance? It's compassion. You know, it's said that the Buddha, after his enlightenment, what moved him most to begin teaching was exactly this perspective. You know, seeing beings. He said he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom. And he saw all these beings going around, just like us, you know, doing all these things, wanting happiness wanting freedom, and yet out of ignorance doing the very things which just brought suffering. And it was the seeing this that, it said, opened his heart of compassion. It's understanding the law of karma, that actions bring results when we really see this, see this in our own lives and in the lives of other people, then when we see actions coming out of ignorance that are harmful, harmful to ourselves, harmful to others, when we see that, 
the response we have is one of much greater openness and connectedness and compassion for that ignorance. You know, when we see someone walking into fire, what is it that we do? Do we blame them for it? Do we try to prevent them from entering the fire? Do we try to awaken them to what the situation is? So reflecting on this law of karma can really awaken in us a great compassion for the ignorance which drives so many of our actions. But it also brings about or conditions great sympathetic joy. Reflecting on the law of karma can create a great delight in our minds. Now, when we see people in good circumstances, maybe enjoying good health or prosperity or success, and just enjoying, enjoying good circumstances in their lives, if we reflect on the law of karma, we can begin to appreciate the past good actions which resulted in this present success, the present good fortune. And what this does, in a very powerful way, it can cut through the perhaps uh, more strongly conditioned habits of envy or of comparison, you know, of judgment or jealousy. We actually can begin to appreciate the good fortune of other people. We also begin to develop mudita, sympathetic joy, when we appreciate not only the good circumstances of people, but people in any circumstances performing good actions, because we know, yes, this is going to lead to happiness. And so even people in difficult situations, as they're cultivating the wholesome roots, we can really take a great delight in that. Because we just see, oh yeah, this is... This is just leading to more happiness, to more joy. There's a a Buddhist chant that is traditionally done uh, at the end of any good action, the performance of any good action. And it's the simple chant which you do at the end of the metta sutta, sadhu, 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 which means well done. Just well done, well done. It's that act of appreciation for anything that we see that is well done because we know it bears good karmic fruit. It's like planting the seeds of happiness, of joy. There's one sutta which is called the Mangala Sutta and it's Mangala means blessings. And in it the Buddha just describes Uh, what are blessings in our lives? And one, and there's a long, long list of different things that, you know, are blessings. But one of the things he mentioned is having done good actions. And it's kind of such a simple thing. You know, having done good actions in the past 
is a blessing because it brings happiness. Well, if we're clever, <laughs> we can extrapolate this to the future. <laughs> if having done good actions in the past is a blessing, maybe doing good actions now will be a blessing. Just a suggestion. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think when, when one reads the teachings I, or hears them, it sometimes reminds me of, you know, the Buddha as a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> okay, now, <laughs> be good. <laughs> Uh, don't kill <laughs> and don't steal. <laughs> I mean, it's such basic things. And yet, as you know, when we really examine deeply the complex web of our conditioning and the subtleties and nuances of motivations behind our actions, it's not quite so simple because we really need to take a lot of care. Okay, from understanding the suffering that comes out of ignorance, how we do unskillful actions out of ignorance and the suffering that comes from that, we can really develop a tremendous compassion for ourselves, for other people when we reflect on the happiness that comes from good actions, skillful actions, we can develop mudita, or joy. Joy in the happiness of ourselves, the happiness of others. Understanding karma also helps us develop the last of the Brahma-viharas, which is equanimity. And this is a very profound and subtle state. Equanimity is intimately connected with wisdom. Compassion is that wish, it's that wish in the heart to alleviate suffering and to actually take actions based on that wish. Equanimity comes from seeing clearly the karmic relationship between action and result, that all situations and experiences are the product of causes and conditions. Now what's the, what's the fruit of this equanimity? It allows us to be with difficulty, with pain, with suffering, without resentment. And it allows us to be with good circumstances without pride. Because we see everything that's happening is simply the result of conditions. Everything is the product of course, causes. It's equanimity which shows us that even with the greatest compassion in the world, we may not and probably are not able to alleviate all the suffering in the world. Why? Because often 
the conditions or the causes behind that suffering are out of our control. And so even with the most compassion, we may not actually be able to alleviate much of the suffering. And so we need to abide in the wisdom of equanimity, of understanding this. I think it's very important to see clearly the difference between equanimity and indifference. Because as has probably been mentioned before, indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. You know, it can look like it, but it's really a very different state. Indifference is not caring. It's really a pulling back. Equanimity is balance, it's openness. It's impartiality, very different states. If the mind is indifferent, that's when we misuse this understanding of the law of cause and effect. And then we might say, oh, it's just their karma, their suffering. You know, we use that as a kind of way of detaching ourselves, of removing ourselves, of closing off compassion. That's really indifference. That's not equanimity. True equanimity is not a pushing away. It's really an opening up with evenness, opening up with impartiality to what's pleasant, to what's unpleasant. And in difficult situations, equanimity is a tremendous staying power for us gives us tremendous strength and stability. This is a quotation. I'm not sure where it came from. It said, whatever you do right now with temporary things, do them as you would practice in the final moment of death. What a great practice that would be. Now, I don't know whether you remember, this is when the... Uh, Carlos Castaneda books were popular. Uh, but one of the great lines in uh, those books was uh, Don Juan's uh, urging of Carlos to keep death over his left shoulder, and to keep death as an advisor. Can we do that in each moment's experience? So in the world and in our practice, we continue to act motivated by compassion, motivated by metta, by loving kindness, by generosity, and then also remain in the strength of equanimity about what happens. There's a teaching of the Zuni Indians from the Southwest It's called the Fourfold Path to Enlightenment. It's a wonderful condensed expression of a path. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, 
stay open to outcome. <laughs> it really encapsulates a lot. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, especially to oneself, and stay open to outcome. That's the power of equanimity. When we reflect, when we make the understanding of karma a practice, not a theory, because as a theory, it doesn't really touch our lives. As a practice, it can transform our lives. When we really see and connect with the understanding that our actions have consequences. And this means each of our actions, the actions of our bodies, the actions of our speech, the actions of our minds. When we connect with this deeply, we begin to take a much greater responsibility for our lives and what we do, the choices we make. We also begin to take a longer range view, a longer range vision of things. Now in our society, when we look around, it's easy to see, although for many years it wasn't, but it's easy at least now to see the long range consequences, for example, of different actions in the environment. Now we see that we go on polluting the air, polluting the water, it has devastating results. So we begin to see the consequences of those actions or in social issues. We see that our decisions and our actions have impact. What we need to do, and it's really the heart of our transformation, can we see this in ourselves? It's not only in the environment or it's not only in, you know, conditions of our society. It's right within us. Each of our actions has impact, has consequences in the moment and in the future. It has long-term consequences. So this practice of understanding the law of karma, it leads to a very strong and compelling interest in what we're actually doing with our lives. It's a strong and compelling interest in the particular choices that we make. Now it would be very interesting to go through a day in the silence and clarity of the retreat with this in mind. Pay attention to the choices you make with respect to understanding the motivation behind them. And just reflect for a moment on the karmic results of particular motivations. Is it wisdom? Is it illusion? Is it aversion? Is it loving kindness? You know, is it grasping? Is it wanting? Is it renunciation? Is it letting go? Is it generosity? Just to take a look from that perspective. I think it would be very revealing and a powerful training practice for our lives. It really requires 
a tremendous awareness. But without it, we simply live out of habit. It's like we're acting out all the old patterns of our conditioning. And as you see, the power of habit is incredibly strong. So this is the great gift of the retreat, of any retreat, you know, because we have the space to show up, to pay attention, to tell the truth, tell the truth to ourselves, to be open to the outcome. In all of the traditions of Buddhism, you know, in the Theravada and in Zen and Mahayana and Tibetan, and in many other spiritual traditions as well, but certainly within the whole range of Buddhist tradition, tremendous importance has been given to understanding karma and its results. This is not an insignificant thing. It's at the heart of right understanding and was expressed powerfully, I think, uh, by the very great uh, teacher, Indian adept, uh, Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. And who, I mean, his teachings are, are... quite amazing, but he said, though my vision is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. They used a lot of barley in Tibet. You know, barley flour, a grain is tiny. Though my vision, my understanding of emptiness is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma, my attention to action and its result is as fine as a grain of barley flour. The Buddha called this clear comprehension. You know, to consider before acting whether an action is beneficial or not. It seems such a wise thing to do. And yet, you know, how rarely do we actually bring that clear comprehension to our actions? To consider before acting whether it's beneficial or not to oneself, to others. You know, what qualities are being developed in that action? And are these the qualities we want to develop? Each one of our actions is like a drop of water in a bucket. And each drop may seem insignificant, but drop by drop the bucket gets filled. And it inevitably gets filled. It's not that some get filled and some don't. Every bucket just left, drop by drop, uh, goes in. Our minds are getting filled, drop by drop, act by act, breath by breath. 
Well, what are the qualities that are filling it? Awareness, mindfulness, metta, compassion. And that's really what we're doing here. But this is often not recognized in our culture and in ourselves. I mean, we we often forget this. There's one blurb on a book which, although I am a great uh, lover of spy books, I don't think I actually read this one, but I noticed it on this blurb on the jacket cover. A novel of lust, passion, and greed has something for everyone. (laughs) A real delight. (laughs) And how much of our lives is that? (laughs) Karma is not a mechanistic closed system. You know, it's not some kind of fixed thing. You do this and this inexorably happens. It's not like that, according to the teachings. Nothing is fixed. It's our present actions continuously feed in to the stream, influencing the outcome. So the Buddha had a, had a very nice image. He talked of how we can cover or surround unwholesome actions. We surround them with wholesome ones or with skillful ones and how our present purity of action, our present purity of mind attracts or calls up or gives opportunity for all the innumerable past wholesome actions to bear fruit. So it's as if through our present action we create the environment for the past wholesome things to to come to fruit, to bring us happiness. He talked of the power of different actions. You know, and the great power of generosity. He talked of you know the amazing power of generosity, especially in giving or making an offering to the Buddhists or enlightened beings. And yet he said many times more powerful than that is one moment of the heart absorbed in metta or loving kindness. It's a very powerful thing when we actually connect with that space because that moment of connecting with the space of metta deeply and genuinely itself becomes the seed of so many future actions. And he said many times more powerfully than even the mind absorbed in metta is the clear seeing of the arising and passing away, the momentariness of phenomena. Because it's in the clear seeing of that that is the seed of liberation. We see for ourselves that deeply and truly there is nothing to hold on to. Buddha made an extraordinary statement about this. He said that it's better to live for a single day seeing the arise 
the arising and passing of phenomena deeply than to live for a hundred years without seeing it. Well, that's really quite an amazing statement. It's saying, better to live for one day with this clear insight than for a hundred years doing a lot of other skillful things. It's extremely powerful to open our awareness, to connect with the truth of impermanence on this level. It's a very powerful karma. So don't underestimate you know, the, the power, the karmic power of the various practices that we do. The genuine connection with the feeling of metta or loving-kindness the clear seeing of the momentariness of things. Reflecting and understanding the law of karma develops the metta and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. It engenders a deep sense of responsibility for ourselves and our actions in the world. and becomes the very strong motivation for practice. Let's close with one of my favorite stories. It's of Milarepa. Most of you probably know, you know, he was uh, at an early age orphaned and he lived with wicked aunt and uncles, like out of a, a fairy tale. And he was cheated of all his kind of birthright, and he got very embittered. So he went off to the mountains of Tibet, and he studied all this black magic. And he became adept at it. So he came back and wreaked revenge, you know, on his relatives who had so mistreated him, uh, calling down hail and. I don't know, the things that they did in Tibet to wreak havoc. But then somehow he started reflecting on the law of karma and realized, you know, I've done these really bad things. I better get it together. (laughs) So he went off in search of a teacher and he met his teacher, Marpa, who put him through all kinds of tribulations as a way of... uh, helping to unwind some of that karmic uh, fruit. And he went off and lived in the caves, you know, in Tibet, and finally became realized, became awakened, and became one of the powerful teachers in Tibet. There's a collection called The Hundred Thousand Songs of Milarepa. It said that he would often sing the Dharma, uh, you know, in song. Anyway, he spent his life, the rest of his life, teaching many disciples, at the very end of his life, he wanted to pass on the secret transmission you know, to his chief disciple. Just kind of the essence of everything uh, that he had learned, the essence of his awakening. Uh, so he took this one chief disciple and they you know, hiked for weeks up into the mountains to this very remote place. And the disciple kind of prepares the, you know, the scene and makes everything ready for this sacred transmission. And so Miller Raper gets ready to impart to him 
just <laughs> the very heart of the Dharma. And he bent over, lifted his robes, and showed the calluses on his backside. That was the transmission. <laughs> There's really a, an tremendous rarity of conditions in this world which bring people to awakening. You know, it's a very rare and noble thing. We really do share this amazing blessing in our lives, the fruit of some amazingly good and wholesome karma to be here together in this way practicing a path of liberation of freedom, of awakening it's helpful to reflect on this because it can really arouse this quality of spiritual ardency to make use of these conditions Though my vision is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. This is the union of relative and absolute. And this is really the heart, this union is the heart, the essence of our practice. Let's sit for a few minutes. Make a few calluses. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.